Hello and welcome to Right Wing Dharma Squads, episode 23, where we are continuing our discussion of the root verses of the middle way by Nagarjuna. I am your host, Dharmakirti, joined by the squad, if you guys want to in- introduce yourselves. Hey, everybody. Hey, it's Aura here. And this is Kagyu. Um, and we got a special guest as well. <laughs> uh, hopefully he won't be too disruptive. So, yeah, I... Um, this uh next kind of section of the text like i think we can just it's it's it'll we can jump right in in a second but um to give a kind of high level overview the first chapter uh to to review was about causality (laughs) it was about causality and the relationship between you know cause and effect in kind of very general terms we will return to that topic but the um and the second chapter was about which is sort of a foundation for the the rest of it was about the relate what it, what does it mean for something to be going in reality to perform any kind of activity but there's, there's this question of like what does it mean for there to be some activity some kind of causal activity of going the idea, one of the main ideas there being you know if there is such a thing as going then presumably there should be a someone who goes right well then what is the relationship between these things? Is the going in the goer? Um, and we sort of, you know, analyze that like, actually, <laughs> actually, no, that doesn't work. That's not a, that's not a reasonable explanation um, of the phenomenon of going, because if there is, <laughs> if there is a going, then there should be, uh, it, it, there, if you say that, <laughs> if there's a going that's, that's separate from the goer, then we have a problem. Um, there should be one yeah. go, please. If uh, it's kind of funny when you think about it, because if if the going and the goer aren't the same, then you create the possibility for something that is inherently a goer that doesn't go and a going where nothing goes. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's funny. Um, exactly. And and this is like sort of the found one of the found. This is one of the kind of major themes throughout this text and and in in these in these chapters. Um, the, these chapters though in particular. They, they're they're unified we, we want to try to get through we'll see what happens um chapters three four five and six which are all um kind of similar in certain ways and and it's important to understand that uh you know th- as a as a whole this text has like uh certain things in common in terms of the argument is is um consistent in certain ways like like he's sort of examining the same thing different things from the same thing from different angles and then the same thing from different angles. And then he'll say like he does at the end of chapter three, like, uh, you know, well, you know, we've done this examination of one kind of thing, but actually it applies to all the same things, (laughs) all the same things in the class. Um, so with that, I don't know if, uh, uh, storm, if you wanted to, I know you had a line by line thing or if, if, or Kagyu, you had some general thoughts or observations you wanted to chime in with. Yeah. I'll say basically as an overview, what these the thing that holds these three chapters together is the idea and analysis of the relationship between an individual and a property and the problem arises when you try to make sense of like we we've already talked about when you try and make sense of uh individuals and properties as existing separately and not depending on each other uh you end up in the exact situation that was described before where You'll have, you know, if, if there's a thing that is motion that inherently exists and a thing that has as its nature inherently to move, you create the possibility for a motion where nothing is moving and something that moves that isn't a mover. So this, all this is going to be about is, is going to, Nagarjuna is going to look at several different things 
And he's going to find that when we separate these things out, when we remove the, the dependence between something and its property, that we get a bunch of weird incoherences. When we, when we take them apart and reify them, we can't put them back together. On the other hand, if we completely eliminate them, uh, then that is totally contrary to what we experience. So that's 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 the basic overview here. That's what we're going to be dealing with today. Yeah, the the kind of the big picture, um, and and maybe we didn't really emphasize this enough last time, or but it, but um, that's fine. I mean, just to sort of understand what's going on in terms of that big picture is it's what's what what's called dependent origination. This idea that things arise in dependence upon causes and conditions and there's this there's this kind of mutual causal relationship um now in a I mean, there you know nagarjuna later on has a chapter that's specifically an examination of dependent origination although that's more in the kind of there's like i guess a kind of more technical sense of dependent origination which is um the process by which uh, a being comes to be born like essentially there's you know there's a there's a consciousness and then there's feelings of you know pleasure and pain that that create um craving that creates becoming that creates birth i, I skipped several steps but that's the basic outline um, that would be the 12 fold chain as well that's right, right. That's, the 12 links yeah, of dependent okay. origination but i have it right here if you want me to read it um yes do you want to yeah sure go ahead i mean <laughs> I'm on the fence because it's a, I am going to go ahead and read it. But uh, on the one hand, it is a little bit bewildering um, and it's a little dry, you know, because it comes from the, the Pali Sutras. But on the other hand, I, I think it's important to address because even though the translation here might not be the, the same as the translation we're using in terms of the, um, the terms being used and everything, the English words being used, it's still they're, they're all talking about the same thing. And I, I said this last week, but um, to me, it's very important. So I'll repeat it. And that is that the one of the primary or perhaps the primary reason for this uh, for Nagarjuna's text is that um, these things are sort of at the core of how the Buddha described like how suffering is created in the first place. And the reason it's important to have a clear yeah, a clear understanding of what's going on, or, or you might even say a radically different or radically clear idea of what's going on, which is the work of Nagarjuna here. Um, the reason it's important is because it's sort of at the core, at the root of what the, the Buddha was teaching about where where does suffering come from. So here's very, here's it's just one paragraph um, from the murdering the Pali here, Paticca Samupada Vibhanga Sutta. Analysis of Dependent Co-Arising. And what is Dependent Co-Arising, O monks? From ignorance as a requisite condition come fabrications. From fabrications as a requisite condition come consciousness. From consciousness comes name and form. From name and form come the six sense media. From the six sense media uh, uh, comes contact. From contact comes feeling. From feeling comes craving. From craving comes clinging. From clinging comes becoming, from becoming comes birth, from birth, then aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair. Such is the origination of this entire mass of stress and suffering. And uh, to wrap it up, I just, for our listeners, and also as a reminder, all of us, like those things, it you, at least I get lost in the middle, but the, each one of those things has like a very specific meaning, at least it did it in the Abhidharma, and it has a, a very, you know, there's all these 
reams and reams of text uh, explaining what each one of those little terms mean. These are these are not just like words they're throwing around. They're very specific about each what these things refer to. And then specifically, the, the the sixth sense media that it was described, like that's the sub. When we see here, um, if you, for anyone who's watching the video, um, uh, you can see I have pulled up chapter three, an analysis of the ayatanas. That's the ayatanas. The six ayatanas are those six sense sources or six sense media. Um, and I'll get into that in a second. But the um, and and thank you for reading from from that um, sutta. Or, um, yeah, that, that's the kind of like this, what we're talking about in the general terms is this causal process by which both specifically like we come to suffer. There's a kind of, in a sense, ethical component or this idea that, you know, we, you know, are, are in this situation where we, we have, we, there is suffering. Um, that's why we're, you know, interested in the Dharma. And that's what the Dharma is intended to address is this problem of suffering, um, but then you can look at dependent origination in two in two ways, kind of broadly, as both, you know, in the kind of specific case of like why are we stuck in this bad situation? Well, it's because you know we 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 have this craving, this clinging that comes ultimately from you know our consciousness having contact with phenomena that creates these feelings of craving and and so on. Um, but then also in more general terms, like that's a kind of specific example um and and so what nagarjun is getting at is is i mean he's getting at a lot of things but the but the but the kind of overall picture is you know he's talking really about dependent origination this relationship between causes and effects and and what he's one way of thinking about this kind of in the broadest terms is what really what he's getting at is any like you can talk in this way and the talking in this way can be helpful can be even necessary to a point but when you reify thing like re reify is a word that means you know from the latin word race which means thing so it literally means to make into a thing to thingify when you thingify these components when you when you sort of interact with the world as though you know you're you know even pre-consciously as though you know these things were real they had a real ontological existence independently of other things um when you think that there's you know really is such a thing as going right then you start getting into problems this is really in a sense like where he's kind of where he's going with this is you know we, we have all this elaborate kind of mental um you know theories maps that we that we get into and 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 this is where they come from is this sense of of reification and what he's trying to do is to break that down and show the ways in which that doesn't actually make any sense i think of the 12 fold chain as basically being like the layout of the process by which you go from a moment of error to making the ego delusion substantial, right? So that's how I kind of think of it is that there's this moment of error or delusion or what have you. And then that ends up through the 12 fold chain and you buying back into the ego delusion or continuing to buy back into it until you enter meditation or you lapse back out of that, whatever. And then it happens again, you're reincarnated again, right? The only transmigrant between these error-caused incarnations is the Buddha nature. So that's that's how I view it. Yeah, no, which... I, that that's I mean that look that lines up with my personal thing. Yes, I think so. And and that's sort of so like when he, and then we'll get that in, in that's in chapter four is like you know so there's these classical Buddhist categories which is what he's interested in, one of which is the six 
sense spheres, and one of which is the is the five skandhas or the um, the five aggregates. And this is like when you're talking about you know famously this sort of this kind of perennial question of like, well, Buddhism says there's no self. Okay, well then you say there's reincarnation. What is it that reincarnates? There's no one thing. Even in this moment, what we are is an aggregate of aggregates of consciousness and physical form and you know mental and physical formations and 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 so on and this exists in a kind of causal continuity um and that stream is just you know death is just another moment in that stream of cause and effect the the key point is not to get so wrapped up in the idea that um you know that you can the the, the point is that you can't isolate anything like what storm was kind of getting at before you cannot, there's not a point where you can say like, well, this particular thing that, that I've isolated, this one individual thing is the cause and this other singular individual thing is the effect. Because when you really analyze, when you really get down into it, and that's what, what you know, we'll start, I guess, the, 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 you know, getting in the nitty gritty in a second. But when you really start getting into the nitty gritty like that, when you start doing that analysis, you understand that that doesn't actually make any sense. And so in order to start, in order to really talk about any one supposedly individual thing, you actually end up having to talk about everything, literally everything, everything, because everything is interdependent. Everything is dependently co-arisen and therefore everything is empty, but, but we'll get, we'll get there. So, you know, so verse one is, is pretty much a list of like the sense faculties in case you didn't know. So that one's pretty easy. So verse two is talking about visual perception. Well, okay. actually, Storm, let me cut you off just oh, one second. Yeah, go ahead. Maybe we should ex explain to our audience why there's six uh, sense faculties and not five. Well, it's uh, just... I yeah, mean, go yeah, for it. Yeah, go. Oh, well, I mean, I didn't have anything <laughs> witty or anything to say, but it's just, it's the five ones that we con uh, conventionally recognize in the West, which is sight, sound, uh, you know, hearing, vision, touch, um, smell and taste, and in classical Buddhism also is included the mental perception, so objects of the mind. Yeah. And thoughts, would that be like any kind of conceptualization of, um, I guess... It gets observed? complicated, N not kind of, yes. It includes the mo mental mental consciousness. So there's six, there's, there's, so the, the way, let's let me like, back up for a second. So there's, there's, there's two systems in kind of Buddha, in the Abhidharma, um, philosophy or epistemology. There's there's what's called the twelve ayatanas and the eighteen datus, and, and they're basically the same thing, which is the six faculties together with their six kinds of object is the twelve um, ayatanas, and then if you add the um, the six consciousnesses, um, then you get the eighteen datus. And and the idea here is basically, and this is what it's what it's, it's going the analysis here is is in a sense going to hinge on. I mean, this is sort of where I was going with this, and we'll get there in a second you you uh the the process is purely causal so when you have a an appropriate faculty that comes into causal contact with an appropriate object the consciousness is just bang immediately produced like you know bang it, it's, it's without any kind of um without anything it's just a pure cause effect so to speak relationship now with the mental consciousness it works a, a little bit different because men, the mental consciousness can take as an object um both like mental constructs like concepts as you said kagyu that's that's one thing that it can do but it can also take other cognitions as its object now now the weed like nagarjuna doesn't really get into the weeds on that that's like kind of a little bit of a different 
branch of Buddhist philosophy in certain ways. Um, but it is important to understand sort of what he's getting at. Um, and I think specifically in terms of this, and, and we, we're about to get to in verse two, when he says, you know, vision doesn't see itself, which I want to hear what Storm has to say, but, but keep what I just said in mind as we go along. Yeah, that's good. So, th sorry I cut you off, Storm. So, please continue. Okay, so I'm going to give you my read on verse two. So, what this is about, it's pretty cryptically stated. So, it's kind of hard to dig into. Um, but this is about the idea that visual perception inherently has seeing as its nature. Okay, because we're not talking about the seer yet, we're talking about visual perception itself. If it has, see, if visual perception has seeing as its nature, right? That means we're going to orphan the actual act of seeing away from a subject. So what that happens is then you gain the possibility, when you separate them like that, you gain the possibility for there to be sight with no seer and for there to be an inherently existent thing that has seeing as its nature that is incapable of not seeing. I think that's exactly right. Whew. That's one of the more difficult ones here. Yeah, no, it, it, that's exactly right. The, the only thing I would add really is this, this like, so again, in the kind of classical Abhidharma model, going back to this other very famous and important um, Buddhist scholar uh, and like, he's, anyway, Vasubandhu, um, there's a... Uh, there's this kind of debate that was going on in, in the Buddhist tradition and between Buddhist and other traditions about what exactly is it that sees. And, and the kind of classical answer in the Abhidharma that was expressed by Vasubandhu but became kind of standard was that it's, it's, there's no, it's not that there's a seer that's the one that's seeing, um, it's consciousness that sees. And, and what that means is what, he, what he's really saying is just that, like, again, what you have is this stream of cause and effect. Consciousness is produced as this, like, stream, as this effect from the causal contact. And, and because, you know, it's, it's just purely an effect, it's not like there's an agent of seeing um, that you, it, on, the, on the contrary, you have this, this situation where it's, um, it's, it's to, 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 for, the, for, the, for the consciousness, for the visual consciousness to exist, that's all that it means for there to be seeing. Then that's the classical Abhidharma analysis. That's sort of what what uh, Nagarjuna is responding to. What he's doing here is he's taking that analysis and he's going like a step further. And he's saying like, okay, let's grant it for the sake of argument that we have this visual, there is a visual consciousness. Well, what is it that's like, what does that mean, really? Is there seeing in that visual consciousness? And he's saying, well, no, because like you, you, I mean, in a sense, from your own admission, you've already acknowledged that there is no like active. If you're saying that they're going to have like a seeing that is a, a, an activity of seeing separate from the appearance of the consciousness, then you could have this activity of seeing without there being anything that's like any visual consciousness happening without actually having there be anything that's being seen. Um, and, and, it, and you could get a act of seeing that sees nothing, nothing. right? Right. Because it doesn't depend on the scene. So you would have basically what you would have to call like visual aperception, right. which is yeah. actually really funny and absurd. I don't know how, um, if this is making any sense to anyone other than me in store. <laughs> I, uh, I hope it is. Uh, I mean, I think I get it. It's, it's, you're saying that it, basically if vision preexisted the one who sees... It could just, you know, perceive. It would just be like this, almost able to perceive things just almost randomly, or, um, or not, or like just even when there's nothing there to perceive, so without any object. 
as opposed to yeah, it's like an own. it's an absurd proposition to even yep. consider that that there, there's a state of vision happening without <laughs> like in a nameless placeless. <laughs> it makes me it's laugh. Just... I read. I laugh reading this shit all the time. I love it. I mean, you, you can only say that there's a capacity for vision, but that would then mean it's dependent on something else. Well, the question is, okay, so this capacity thing kind of it comes up kind of more later, but this is a great yes. example of the kind of. Like, so what you're doing, and this isn't your fault, but it's a great illustration of the kind of thought process here is you're saying like, okay, well, maybe there's like this capacity to see. Okay, well, where is that capacity? Like prior to the exercise of the capacity to see, is there seeing? Well, no. After the capacity supposedly has been exercised and now we're seeing, like what use is the capacity? You also then, because you're, the capacity is dependent on the subsequent seeing, you also have to ask yourself, where's the capacity for the capacity and the capacity for the capacity for the capacity and so on. <laughs> yes. You end up with a regress. So what, what you continually find with the opponent's rebuttals to Nagarjuna is that they either end up destroying the, the uh, inherent existence of what they're trying to reify by making it depend on something because they have to, or they just build all the qualities of what they want to argue towards into the initial into the initial argument which is just begging the question right which is like saying later we get to the point where the opponent says oh matter is just uh it's caused by matter which makes no sense right that's infinite regress so you always end up begging the question on one side or with an infinite regress on the other storm i think your explanation was really good because i will say um when i was reading through this uh in chapter three here verse two which is what we're discussing right now uh, it the way the pagination went in my electronic copy that last line was at the very bottom of my page and i highlighted it and my wrote my note eh, as in i'm not sure i agree with this one and then i turned the page and found that there's like two pages of exposition by the comment uh, the commenters right explaining that yes indeed this is actually one of the verses that it sometimes has I don't know, controversy is not the right word, but other people have commented that it's the it's one of the arguments in here. Some, some of the arguments are like crystal clear, like he makes them and you're like, damn, that was really smart. And other ones, like this one, for me at least, I'm like, well, I don't quite get it yet. And apparently I'm not the only one who had that reaction, according to the commenters. And um, yeah. they go on to explain it, and I think I finally sort of got it by the end of reading through the rest of this chapter. But I get it even more thanks to your explanations, so it's good. The only reason I'm able to do that is because I have read it literally the entire work with the commentary. I've read like two versions and I've read it in total six times because it pissed me off so bad that I wasn't getting it. And like I have an <laughs> academic philosophy degree and I, I have to get it. So I get it now, but only because of persistence. I think Nick Nagarjuna is uh, chilling in the Naga realm right now, smiling that you got pissed and then got happy about his book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so in verse three... The opponent basically makes a rejoinder using the analogy of fire. So he says, okay, fire burns things, but it can't burn itself. What about that? What if vision is like that? So that's essentially one of the arguments that was already refuted in chapter two. And this is how it was refuted. So whatever is burning or seen in this case, must it must be burned or seen at one of the three times, the past, the present, or the future. But as with motion or the goer and the mover, um, it can't be in the past on pain of infinite regress because then you get a situation where it's always moving further into the past and it never obtains. It can't be in the present since the present is durationless. If the present isn't durationless, you're now talking about the past, present, and the future altogether, 
you're calling it the present and you're actually destroying the utility of the concept if you do that. So this applies um, the same for vision, right? So there's another issue um, besides the, the durationless present and it's that the visual process itself actually takes up time. And so the present as it presently is, is actually never apprehended. Ergo, there is no evidence of it. So it can't be as the opponent says that fire burns things but can't burn itself. What about that? It, that doesn't make any sense either. So the only, basically, and as we'll find again and again, the only way to get around this is if we realize that the seer and the seen are mutually interdependent and empty of self-essence. You, you got comments on that? Does that make sense? The, the three-way temporal paradox shows up again and again and again, right? Yeah, I mean, there's, again, like, the, the, this is what I was getting at before in terms of, um, first of all, there's, like, a kind of stable of arguments that are used, but also sort of, um, in, in a sense, what a lot of them, maybe, in a, maybe in, a, in a sense, all of them come down to is this, the, the, the problem is when you think that you can isolate something. when Whatever it is that you think, like, you, you're taking a slice out of the universe, a slice out of samsara, and you're saying, like, okay, well, this part, this thing exists you know, really and truly, because to exist really and truly is to exist independently of anything else. It's to not depend on anything else for your existence. And and what he keeps showing is, well, actually, everything, there's nothing like that. And as soon as, as, soon as you try to hypothesize whatever it is that you try to point to, you're going to come up empty for, for a lot of reasons. And that's, of course, one of the main ones. Hello? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry. I was like, did I? Did, 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 yeah, did no, we I don't have anything to add to that, actually. No, that's the same. Um, Do we want to yeah. keep going? Yeah, let's let's talk about chapter four, because I also want to make sure we get to the chapter on space um, today, which I guess. Absolutely. Yeah, that's an important one. So so uh, the, um, the 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 kind of uh, big picture thing on chapter four. So it, this is an analysis of the skandhas, which uh, just to repeat. The um, in in class in like from a Buddhist perspective, there is no self. Um, this is like the kind of maybe the single most important non-negotiable thing in Buddhism. Um, what there is is the are these five skandhas, um, and uh, typically you know these are the, the rupa, which is corporeal or physical, feeling, perception, volition, and consciousness. Um, and so, and, and the, again, it's an important thing to understand that even these, from a kind of classical perspective, are understood to be themselves plural. They're not singular. They're, they're multiple. Like, with physical form, physical form isn't a single entity. It's ma you're made up of many atoms, or you're made up of many particles of different kinds of materials, and so on. Same thing with consciousness. Like, class classically, there are, you know, the six types of consciousness, um, you know, the, the five sensory consciousnesses plus the mental consciousness in, in Yogacara analysis. It's those six plus the seventh um, defiled mental consciousness plus the eighth all-ground or storehouse consciousness. Um, uh, you know, volition is a complicated topic, is a whole big topic in this. But the point is that there's not any one single individual solid self that you can say like, oh, this is me and I exist in this way apart from my body or apart from my mind or, or whatever. Or it is my mind, but it's sort of like, well, no, your mind itself is plural in important ways, according to this analysis. And what Nagarjuna is, is getting at here is he's saying, well, you know, even when you try to say like, well, 
when you're trying to talk about, well, the, the, the aggregate of the word for physical form in this context is rupa in Sanskrit. When he says, well, there's rupa, you know, someone wants to say like, yeah, okay, there's no self. What there is is, um, you know, rupa and these other aggregates. And what he's saying is, well, no, when you're trying to say like there is rupa, well, what is it that you're talking about? And like, no, I guess we can talk about that. Actually, on, on the subject of rupa, um, the Siddharth's translation I'm using, they're not translating it because typically when I've seen it before, it's, it, it's, it's uh, turned in English, it's translated as like form, like in the heart sutra, rupam shunyata, I think. Um, but it's actually a much broader thing than that. It's almost like a, um, it can refer to any number of... Um, yeah, it, it can mean shape. It can mean form. It can mean physical, like, matter. It can mean, like, it's the object of the visual consciousness. Like, so what your eye comes into contact with in this classical analysis, in the sense of something that's visible, is rupa. It, it has a, a bunch of different meanings. It can also sort of... I like it like as also, matter. Because, like, I mean, it could even refer yeah, to any Yeah, it can also mean, like, prana, though. Because, I mean, couldn't it be used to refer to almost any object of consciousness, like, say, um, like a taste or a, a sound even? It, at least that's... In a, it's anything material can be okay. rupa. That's that's why, okay. like, when I made my notes, I just used matter. So I, that's what made the most sense to me, and that's what gave me the most clarity when I was trying to figure these arguments out, was to just think of it as matter. So where are we at now? Uh, unless you had something, yeah, we're in, we're in like four we're, we're in chapter four, verse one, if, or wherever you want to go with that. Okay, hold on, let me scroll down here. So chapter four. So this is about the aggregates, right? So he's going to be the opponent is going to be um, motivated by the notion that since vision depends in part on the seer, uh, that the seer might have to really exist as a being with a self essence, and Nagarjuna will continually hold that no reduction of the person will yield a self essence. So that's going to be the overview of this chapter. Um, so verse one, it, th these, these are my take on it, right? Matter always appears with its cause and causes always appear um, with their matter. But is the existence of matter itself or rupa, the mere fact of it being, is that something that is caused? So um, if, if it does so, it is either going to be caused by something that's the same or different from matter. So if it's the same we get the infinite regress of matter causing matter. In the latter, we have something immaterial causing the material, which is, is an absurd miracle and is not really, not really an explanation. So those are going to be two of the biggest problems with positing matter itself as self-existent. If it's, and, and really, the bigger problem here is that if we're talking about something self-existent being caused then we've already destroyed its essence. Because if it's caused, it's therefore dependent. And if it's dependent, it's not self-existent. That's yeah, why I read to verse too, 1. Yeah, not to be too facile about it, but I mean, it, it's very similar to like the laws of thermodynamics, right? Like it's just, it, on the material level, nothing can just come from nothing, right? There has to be a pre, there has to be something before it that caused it. And it doesn't, you know, you can't just destroy it and turn it into nothing either. The, the energy or the matter has to be transferred to something else. Right. And continuing on, verse 2 um, is essentially just mentioning that things always appear dependently with their causes. And verse 3 talks about, you know, okay, if we say that matter is causally dependent on an inherently existing cause, but it itself is empty, we would have an empty effect from a cause with an essence. And, and that dissimilarity is incoherent. Um, and 
Yeah. Right. So the, DK, the, go ahead. Well, so the, the question here is what does it really mean to say that things are related, right? What does it mean to say that, um, you know, what, when you're saying like something, something is the cause of, of matter. Matter, this matter that currently exists in front of me has a certain, you know, shape and certain qualities, whatever. Like we can, we're going to get to the question of the qualities in a second, but. Um, okay, fine. It exists a certain way. We're saying that it exists that way because, you know, it has certain causes that are responsible for it existing in that way. Well, uh, what is the relationship between the cause and the thing that's in front of me? Because if you want to say that these things are separate, right, that, the, you know, the cause is kind of one thing over here and the effect is this other, this thing that's right now in front of me, then how how could these things really be, how could these things actually be related? How could two things, if you have say like there's an X and a Y and these things are actually truly ultimately independent, right? That they, they, they have a separate existence from each other. How could they ever even come into contact? And, and also you would get uh, causes appearing everywhere with no logic to where they appear and you would get effects appearing everywhere with no logic or pattern to where they appear and that's not something we see right we we see conventionally and conventionally describe cause and effect as as something that has an order to it you know like you would see uh for example if if fire uh in the fire if the firewood and the fire were inherently existent and didn't depend on each other you would you would have fires with nothing burning um and and that you don't see that right we don't see those type of things so that's another problem with reifying causes. Do you want to continue? Yeah, I'll just read on my notes on verse three. If we hold matter to be causally dependent and inherently existing cause, we would have an empty effect from an essence cause. So we already said that. This would mean that the cause would fail to be a real cause in the fullest sense. Since genuine causes and their effects have been shown to have a relation of dependence, then for something to count as a cause independent of its effect is incoherent. And that's what we just just uh, went over. And we should remember when we're looking at the actual text that when non-existence is mentioned, they're talking about the non-existence of an essence, right? When we say that there are actually no causes, we don't mean that yeah. well, we I don't mean, observe exactly. it. If, if, yeah. if you're trying to say that something really exists and you're coming up short, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, if, 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 you, if you can't even point to something that exists, truly and ultimately like how could you like the idea of something not existing makes even less sense right yeah so you end up that things are empty and conventionally designated right so that's that's a solution to everything here um so then we're moving into verse four um and so any relationship between form and a suspected cause is going to end up being ultimately unintelligible if it's reified um, if matter exists then the cause would have had to cease to exist um Let's see. If a uh, matter does not exist, then the cause cannot have existed, right? You can't, there's nothing that is caused with a non-existent cause. So this is this is not necessarily a rejection of the possibility that things can depend on each other. Uh, this is a rejection of the possibility that inherent things can depend on each other. It, d it doesn't make any sense, right? right. So the, the, the question is, what what is the basis on on which you're set, you're designating something as a cause right like the, the 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 this question of the basis in particular the basis for the designation is really central and so that's the thing is like when you say like okay well i have this matter here in front of me by definition 
it has all whatever it is that supposedly you're trying to designate as the cause has already like it, it's no longer relevant because I have this thing in front of me. And in fact, when you're talking about, you know, um, what what really exists, if you're going to try to say that the cause, you know, really existed as a cause or something, you're talking about something in the past. But the past, again, by definition, doesn't exist. The only thing that's even a, even a candidate for existing is the present. So at the moment in the present where, you're, where this thing, this matter is right in front of you, th there's no question of like whatever it was that whatever it was that supposedly caused it, you're saying like, oh, this is the thing that I'm designating as having caused it, by definition cannot exist. Right. And so like if A causes B, all right, so we've got B, if A is still around, then it either has ceased being a cause or we're totally incoherent. Because if, if A produces B and then A is still around, it would still be producing B. So what happens is if A produces B and we've got B, that means that whatever A is, it's not a cause inherently. Its nature is not to cause. So what, what you see in verse 4 and to a lesser extent verse 5 is that these paradoxes of causality, they only come up when you, when you ascribe a special power to the causes either a special explanatory power or inherent existence. That's what, that's where we get all these issues, right? So, I mean, an opponent is someone who's admitted that uh, each configuration of matter is empty, but they're trying to reify um, matter in the abstracts. So this means that for him, matter must have an explanation of its existence. And since this existence is inherent, it must be an explanation in terms of inherently existing causation. So this can't, this is incoherent since once again, when you have a dependence, you you have destroyed the possibility for an essence, right? So he, you can't separate everything out like this, reify it, and then put it back together. This is the problem, right? We can't put these things back together once we reify them. Well, the question is that, yeah, exactly. And the question is at a certain level, or like one of the things to, to keep thinking about here is, you know, what is an essence, right? Like when you're trying to say that an essence, maybe, I mean, we can debate about this, but the one way of thinking about it, you know, is, is, uh, an essence is what makes something what it is, right? It's it's that without which the thing wouldn't be whatever it is, and that with which the thing is what it is. And and the problem is when you start trying to figure out, okay, well, what is this thing that is making things what they really are? Um, you, you, this is kind of like a long this this whole text taken as a whole is a kind of a long hunt for well, what is that, and and how does it work? And, and every time we try to like point towards something, every time we try to say like, well, maybe it's this, it's like, well, but if you look, if you try to isolate it in this way, you try to say like, well, this thing is this essence of this thing, you know, the, 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 the essence of seeing is the, vi is the vision is the seeing, well, that, that doesn't, that creates this problem, right? Of uh, you're no longer able to, to you, you, you have vision without seeing and you know, there's, there's, you, end, you, you create this giant headache. You create, you know, uh, incoherence after incoherence. Yeah, like if you say that water is inherently wet, this, then you're applying the possibility, if you reify those two things, you're saying, okay, well, we're gonna have wetness with no water and water that isn't wet, right? So it's solved by saying, oh, there is no inherently existing water that has this property of inherent wetness. It's just that water is wet. They, they come together and they're empty of self-essence and that's how they can interact. It's, a, it's super elegant and beautiful uh, of an argument. And it's, it's funny um, that this isn't thought about more in, in more circles. I mean, Sextus Empiricus came, 
came on to some of this stuff, which is pretty impressive and, and in some ways Wittgenstein, but it's a little more iffy. Um, okay, so that was verse... That was verse 4. So in verse 5, this is basically a recapitulation. The moral of the story is that the entire concept of matter or form, rupa, is conventional, and that when we reify it, we get confusion and suffering and errors. Um, verse 6. Uh, let me read verse 6. Somebody want to actually read the text of verse 6 real quick from yeah, the it, translation? It, it does not hold that the effect resembles the cause. It does not hold that the effect does not resemble the cause. So we can't say that non-material things give rise to the material. Because again, as we discovered earlier, that's basically an appeal to a miracle and isn't really an explanation. And we can't say that matter gives rise to matter on pain of begging the question and an infinite regress. So if we want to preserve essences, there's no other explanation. Um, therefore, there are no essences. Matter itself uh, isn't coherent. Matter depends on material things and vice versa. That is to say that there is no quality of being matter that material things have. They, th that's simply the way we talk about it. It's a product of convention. And so in, in the rest of this chapter, verse 7, 8, and 9, he, he takes this argument about properties and causation, and it's applied. It's basically applied to everything else, right? Um, once the emptiness of a class of phenomena is shown, once we've shown that you know all of a certain thing is empty, any replies the essentialist makes are going to have to beg the question or imply an infinite regress. So they're going to either assume what they want to prove in their premises, or they're going to end up explaining something with itself, which is just is really two of the same things. Like any theory of causation is going to be beset by the causal paradox uh, paradoxes developed in this work. Anything an opponent would posit is as inherently existent is going to have to be assumed from the outset to have been completely independent and irreducible, which is already the conclusion they're trying to make. Or they're going to say that it arises from another independently existing phenomenon, which in turn posits a relation of dependence, which destroys the thing's essence in the process. So that's pretty much checkmate essentialists. So I want to point to like a kind of double profundity to this chapter, because um, the arguments being made as explicated by you, Storm, and excellently, um, are excellent. They're very good and they're convincing and they have far reaching implications. But I want to bring it back one more time to the, the class of phenomena that he's addressing in this chapter. Again, he's talking about the skandhas, which, um, Dharmakirti explained, um, which are these sort of five aggregates or five sort of classes of phenomena that heap together and <laughs> and form what we what we think is ourself and i can tell you that coming at this from an outsider um many years ago the skandhas the the five aggregates you know i could i could list them off but you know they were kind of just words um and and you know a listener can tell how hard it is to describe them because we were only trying to define rupa or form uh, at the beginning of this to give an example of one of the five skandhas. Rupa is just one of them. Um, and so you, you know, you immediately feel like you're off in the deep end. And what I just want to say is that when you sit down in meditation, you actually take enough time for it. And if you use one of the skandhas, uh, form is the easiest one, as a, as a um, subject for meditation, and you get into concentration, you actually can and I would argue should um, get into 
being able to differentiate the five skandhas, um, consciousness can be very hard to um, see just on its own, at least for me. Um, they're, they're not exactly in ascending order of difficulty to perceive, but they, to me, they sort of are. Um, but the point is that it's, it's a very profound experience in meditation to start perceiving um, how you've reified your own skandhas um, and how they're not really, first of all, that you're not a monad yourself. And that second of all, your feelings aren't monads, your perceptions aren't monads, uh, that they are sort of made up of all these random little parts that sort of pop up um, seemingly, seemingly randomly, but of course it's not totally random. It's due to karma. Um, so that is, and that is like a very core meditation practice, at least for beginners, not, you know, non super advanced arahants or whatever. Um, and that is like a, like I said, a very profound experience. And then in this chapter, in this book in general, and specifically in this chapter, Nagarjuna is pointing out that even those like, you know, the profound, uh, experience of seeing your skandhas and seeing how your skandhas are made up of these little dharmas and everything is that e even that is essentially empty of anything in and of itself and frankly I, I start to run out of words um to really describe what the implications of that are and i actually i think that's sort of the point of the book is that there there really aren't words um to describe that because words are yeah it, the, 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 the concepts is, and yeah you, concepts you are reified a, and yeah you're yeah. Sorry, like uh, to, to interrupt. I mean, I wanted to just to jump in for a second. Like, you you reach a point where it indu induces this state of you know a certain kind of peace, a certain kind of quietude, a certain your mind is no longer occupied in a certain way, and that's what it's all about. That that seems exactly it. Like in like in verse five, I mean, the second part of that. Thus, do not. Thus, one should not impose any concepts on rupa. Don't uh, deny. Don't deny that. It, there's good reasons to deny that it has a cause, and it's good reason to deny that it's causeless. So affirm neither. It's, I mean, just kind of ex it, it's 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 um, not even like between the two. Just yeah, exactly. Well, again, the middle way isn't a middle way. It's not like there's some kind of middle between existence and non-existence, and that's what it means to be empty. It, it's orthogonal to this whole kind of question of does it exist or not. So I want to address some questions in the chat. Um, CS is is asking, you know, are he's saying that the the, the essentialist position is being strawmanned a bit, and he's asking like, you know, why is it that um, if something is dependent that it can't have an essence, right? So, an essence here, the, the the Buddhist way of defining essence is it's something that's irreducible, meaning that it can't be broken down into parts, um, that it's eternal, right? Um, it's indivisible, et cetera, right? So that's, that is a self-essence, right? It's something that is what it is inherently. So if it depends on something else for any of those qualities, then it's not an essence. It's dependent, right? So you can either have an essence or dependence. It doesn't make sense to talk about the two. Uh, and he says he's new to, this is CS, by the way, in the chat. Thank you for the question. He says he's new to um, efficient causation. So I, somebody's going to have to remind me exactly what that term of art means. The, the efficient cause in in Aristotelian philosophy, if I recall correctly, is what we would normally think of as being the cause. You know, according to Aristotle, classically, there are four causes. I mean, now I'm trying to, this is dust off the cobwebs. There's what, the material cause, which is the stuff out of which something is made. There's the uh, final cause, which is what it is like, what's for, what its purpose is. Um, there's a third kind of cause that I'm blanking intermediate on. Intermediate causes. 
maybe the intermediate is yeah. that right yeah probably yeah and and, 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 and the dominant the, cause efficient which is the efficient cause which is like what act what's the like what's the real what's the kind of essential cause so to speak um and yeah, I mean, this is this is kind of an interesting framework for thinking about stuff. But but again, it's like sort of like well, as soon as you're playing this game, I mean, there's multiple layers of analysis with Nagarjuna and multiple ways you can look at it. And I think what what Wara was getting at, and I I think he you know he really expressed really well is um, you know, part of what Nagarjuna is doing here is he's he's taking these kind of classical categories that by by his time were sort of because again, remember this is two thousand years ago, but it's still like 700 years of Buddhism at that point. So this is already kind of like, there's a kind of well-established way of thinking about things and talking about things. And he's this saying like, as, well, this, yes, the, the Abhidharma stuff was as classical to Nagarjuna as like Aquinas is to modern, exactly, like Christian exactly theologians. Right. And so the question is like, okay, well, he's like saying we are taking these categories for granted, but like, how real are they? How accurate of a reflection? He's not saying that you're, they're wrong exactly so much as like when you're dividing up reality into like, this five thing and this six thing and this 18 thing, like, are they really independent? Are they really independent things in the way that you're sort of conditioned to think about them? And, and, and no. And so when you're doing the same thing with like Aristotelian analysis or any kind of causal analysis, like when you're trying to say, well, this one thing is like the main cause, it's like, okay, but what, you know, how does that really, what is the causal story that you're telling here? How, how much can we really, you know, how well does that really work as a kind of explanation? And, and so the, the, the accusation, which I totally understand, is like, well, you're kind of strawmanning a bit, right? You're saying, like, an essence has to be a certain way. But, but, if, but think about it from the other perspective. If essences weren't that way, you know, because there's no the, – the problem here is trying to say that things have essences. If, we, if we're okay, if we're comfortable with the idea that phenomena – there is no essence of a phenomena, then that's fine. Um, now, of course, that has certain implications, but but the question is, if phenomena do have essences, what does that mean? What would it mean for something to have an essence? And that's what's under investigation. And what you continually end up with is if you if we start from X has an essence, we find ourselves in contradiction, incoherence, infinite regress, and begging the question over and over and over again. Exactly. And it's because it's because we're being rigorous about it, right? Yeah. So you want to continue? Okay, yeah. So we're in chapter five. Um, and I took my notes kind of differently than than with some words that are actually in the text. But chapter five is about uh, properties and individuals and how they work and are they real and, and all the stuff we just discussed. Um, so verse one, the note I have for that is that well, anything I'll that... I'll set it, it up. Yeah, go let, ahead. Let me set it up just a little bit. So um, I'm actually just going to read the very beginning of the commentary here at the beginning of chapter five because I think it does a good job of, of setting up uh, the concepts that he's talking about. Um, and I think uh, Dharmakirti understands that the, what the Datu is exactly, but um, I'll just read this. The Datu classification is the last of the three major ways of analyzing reality accepted in Abhidharma. It is commonly given as a list of 18 kinds, the 12 ayatanas plus the six resulting forms of consciousness. But here it is the variant list of six that is investigated, earth, water, fire, air, space, and consciousness. Uh, the Datu space is the target of the chapter, but the argument is said to generalize to all the other Datus as well. Uh, the argument focuses on the relationship between space as an entity and the defining characteristics that make it the sort of entity that it is. So I'll let you take back over, Storm, but I actually am glad uh, that it was this way. And I, again, like many of his arguments um, in, in this book, you know, he sort of addresses one example of a class of, of 
of concepts and then says so you know if he can break down one of them then it it goes to show they can break down the others like we just did that in the previous chapter talking about vision right so yeah, basically the... two, two chapters ago but i'm glad that it was space that he chose because i it's it's an interesting concept uh in and of itself but i'll, I'll let you continue yes i mean yeah i agree basically like any anything any of these categories that can be shown to be empty it's going to apply mutatis mutandis to any of the other entities which what that means is that it's the same it's just the specific designations of what we're talking about changes right so we can talk about dogs and what is true for dogs applies to cats and tapers and marmots and what have you um so well, marmots, verse one yeah <laughs> uh verse one so space, or I'm just going to replace space with anything here because that made it easier for me to understand. But we are talking specifically about space. But um, it, I'm going to generalize this. So anything that exists, it has to exist with properties. It can't be free of properties because if it is, then there is no existence to speak of, right? And it can't be characterized apart from anything else. So if we're going to talk about a phenomenon, it has to have some specificity to it. We can't just, there is no phenomenon that's just a phenomenon. And even if there were it would have a property, right? To existence is thought of as a property. So this goes um, into verse two, talking about everything has characteristics for the for reasons above. So then the question is asked: Do the characteristics exist independent of the thing? Comments. Yeah. Well, so so first of all, I mean, there's a kind of like the, I'm, I can hear the Kantians in the audience recoiling at the idea of existence being a predicate. But, um, you know, that's a kind of more complicated question that's not necessarily super relevant here. Um, because the point is like, okay, well, if you say that, you know, is, uh, how to say, even if existence isn't a predicate um, or can't be a predicate, there is no such thing. I mean, think about what it would mean for there to be a thing that existed, but didn't have any properties, didn't have any qualities, right? And so, so like that just clearly is absurd. So the, the problem then is you have this question of like, okay, well, if you want to say that there is a phenomenon that exists and by definition then because it exists, it has certain properties. Okay, well then what is the nature of the relationship between the properties and the property bearer? What is the relationship between the quality, the qualified and, the, and, and that which is qualified and that which is the quality that's qualifying the qualified, right? And if you want to say that these are actually separate things, if you want to say that there is one entity, one ontological rea ontologically real thing that is that which is the property bearer and and some other ontologically real thing, which is the property that is born, then by definition, you should be able to have a, <laughs> something like a property that isn't actually instantiated in anything. Or from properties. Right. Or, you know, something that bears a property but doesn't actually exhibit. Like, you know, you say, like, you know, okay, well, space in classical. So the reason I think why he's choosing the example of space, he doesn't really say this, and I, I don't know that I've seen this in any commentaries. It's not in this one, I don't think. But in classical Buddhist analysis, like, people say, like, oh, everything is impermanent. It's not exactly the Buddhist line. The Buddhist line is all conditioned phenomena are impermanent. As long as some the conditions for something arise, then the, the, that thing will arise. And if those conditions aren't in place, then that thing won't arise. That's, again, the, another, the essence of dependent origination. Okay, well, that applies to conditioned phenomena. Space 
is I'm, I'm trying to, uh, I guess Nirvana is unconditioned and space is unconditioned. I think those, are, I believe if I recall correctly, those are the only two. The point is that like space in classical Buddhist analysis isn't conditioned. Um, but it is, it does have properties. It is defined, it has the properties of being, uh, uh, basically of being, uh, of, of allowing things to move through it. I forget the like Sanskrit of that, but if you look this up or I could maybe find it later. But the point is um, you have, there are, there, space has the property of, be, of being able to accommodate, I think it's like accommodating and things can move through it, something like that. The point is that you're, you're you know, in, in this kind of framework, you're saying, okay, well, there's a, there's a phenomenon, space, that isn't conditioned, right? So we're not even talking about causes and effects anymore in this specific context. Of course, when you're talking about things that are caused, like the other kinds of things, then it becomes more complicated, but we're, no, we're not even like dealing with that anymore. But we are dealing with something that, at least ostensibly, is a phenomenon that has certain properties. And the problem is, if you try to say, like, well, you know, space has these properties, like, what is that? Like, so then, okay, well, then there's space and then it's properties of space. So then you can have things moving through things that aren't space and space that things couldn't move through. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. And so the point is that there is no such thing as a property and a property bear, a, a property bearer that are two different ontological things. The only way in which it makes sense to talk about something possessing qualities, possessing properties, is as, uh, in a sense, like you're, you're talking about a, 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 a something that's empty, <laughs> essentially, something that, that is able to both, you know, this complex of dependently originated phenomena that, that, that we're sort of imputing or, or superimposing this idea of property bearing onto, but but that's just essentially our own mental fabrications because that when we're like dividing up the world in this particular way, I don't know how much sense that makes. Uh, to to take a little bit of a Zen view on this, you know, I would go so far as to say like if we say okay, space is unconditioned, then that is a property. You know, the the if you say something has no properties, then having no properties is a property. So what that really means is that conventionally right space is not real it is a it's something we refer to with a convention and that's that's the message for me right um i wouldn't want to i wouldn't want to say that there's anything that's not conventionally conditioned because i think that imp that probably implies an essence i don't know how you can escape conventions and have a property um but you know that is a really good summary of this entire chapter um, yeah, that's what this chapter is all about. Um, right. Like at a kind of broad overview type level. Um, yeah. What was the... Um, I lost my train of thought. So, it doesn't matter. So I so the, another question is something Aura was talking about earlier. is like, what's the what's the point of doing this? Why, why does it matter, right? Why is it this problem about properties and property bearers and orphan properties and propertyless things that are sense perceptible and all that being absurd. Why does it matter? Um, well, it matters because reification and annihilation, they cause unrest, confusion, and suffering. If you, if you have these things tainting your understanding, you won't recognize impermanence. You won't rep not recognize your epistemical, uh, epistemic limits, and you'll fall into some erroneous view or another. And then you'll bear the consequences of that, which will send you through the twelvefold chain, incarnation, and pain and suffering and death. You know these are philosophical errors, and they can be either conscious or unconscious. But they're the seeds of grasping and delusion, and they arise. You know I, they come about, in my opinion, mostly due to the mystifying spell 
that the senses and the use of language kind of cast on us. It's an emergent property of being a, a being that has language and a being that perceives things that appear to be uh, individual objects, right? And they appear that way based on con convention and being socialized and, and all of that. So this is a, a systematic undoing of this spell, which is, yeah. is the reason for doing yeah. the philosophy in the first place. Right? Exactly. This is fundamentally a soteriological project. So, so, so I, have, I have one thing I want to say directly to that and one thing that's going to build on something that we I just – it's a great kind of point that was made in the chat. So the, the first thing to say is exactly in that sense, like language and conceptuality are not different things. They're actually the same things. They're actually the exact same thing fundamentally language is sort of when you have a when you have a concept that you've associated with a kind of convention a, like a, a, a sound that you've then associated with that concept and you use it over and over again that's language but the process is the same and the and the so to speak the essence of the things is that language and conceptuality are, are two sides of the same coin the, the, on that note uh, Dim Scrawl brings, brings up a great point. He says, I get the gist of essence and causality that we're getting at, but I've encountered shitlibs using similar arguments to shirk responsibilities. Now, okay. yeah, please go. I, I hate this, and, and I'm going to go off on this real quick because one of the main things that is, that is mentioned again and again in all the commentary on, on this work is that because just because we can't pin down the essential nature of something doesn't mean that it has no nature to speak of, right? Very clearly, we experience an ordered universe. Things aren't just any old way. They are a certain way. So the fact that we can't philosophically pin them down to having an essence doesn't mean that they don't act like they have an essence, right? The essence of water, in terms of just explaining it and talking about it and living our daily lives, well, this, is this that is it's what, wet. Like, like later on in the work, and you know we'll get there eventually, but but this is why Nagarjuna says, you know, those who miss emptiness is like a snake. You know, you grab the snake by the tail, it wraps around and bites you in the hand. You grab it by the head, it you can you can press the the the, the um, fangs and extract venom, which is you know medicinally useful. The point is, you know, you have to understand these things correctly. He also says later on, you know, um, this is why, you know, because someone said he, he goes on, he like takes this analysis. Ultimately, he says, you know, someone says like, well, if you're saying this about, you know, the aggregates and you're saying this about consciousness, etc. Like, what about the Buddha? Is there a Buddha? He's like, of course, there's no, you know, the Buddha doesn't really exist. Not in the way that you're trying to make him, you thinking of him as like a real Buddha that's really out there in this particular kind of essential way. And somebody's like, well, how then, you know, then what are you doing calling yourself a Buddhist? Like, what are you even talking about? He's like, you, person who's raising this objection, you are failing to understand the difference between the ultimate truth and the conventional truth. And the conventional truth is water is wet and the Buddha is the Buddha and we need to do certain things in order to escape samsara. The ultimate truth is samsara and nirvana were never, they, they don't, they're empty, they don't exist the way you really think they exist, they were never separate. All of this is just a game that's going on in your mind and the point of what I'm doing here, I, Nagarjuna, so to speak, I'm doing here, is that I am trying to get you to understand just to fucking stop doing this with your mind, to stop imposing these categories, to stop, you know, thinking about things as having this real existence that you some something for you to grasp onto. There's so much of this is about, you know, we we're trying to say like I'm 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 looking at, you know, my microphone right now and I'm just pre-theoretically interacting with it as though it's like, oh, this is really this real thing that's out there that I can manipulate in certain ways. Without denying that, yes, of course, it can be manipulated certain ways and have certain kind of causal effects. Like, 
this idea that it's really a you know mid-size dry object out there in the world that presents itself as an ontological unity that's just my own delusion that's just like me you know dk being a fucking idiot like you know fundamentally mistaken about the nature of reality full stop And I mean, if there's any, if there's any yeah, kind of shit libs, just they don't have the two truths doctrine. They just have the no truth doctrine. Yeah, it's like you know they 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 say they sort of say yeah, like, okay, on, well, ultimately there's no essence and that's all there is to it. Sorry, go on. There's yeah, go no on, essence, Kagi. therefore pick your own gender. Yeah, exactly. And it's like no man, that's not no, that's not how yeah. any of this works. I mean, the appearance isn't of the conventional truth of appearance. It it's it's predictable. It's measurable, and it's somewhat. I mean, it, it approximates objectivity, even if it really isn't. And it's, I guess it's, it's kind of like the whole takeaway from this chapter. It's, it's really elegantly put just, you know, to deny space is, an, is existent doesn't mean you're affirming it's non-existent either. So, and, and that, I mean, that really seems to be it. Just move away from the conceptuality is really the point he's trying to make with all of this, all of this reasoning. Ironically, when you don't reify things, you actually see reality more clearly than if you did. Yes, Let but that, that, take, that takes training. I mean, this is the so I, I see this in certain in a certain way as kind of very close to Aquinas, in that you know Aquinas very famously said like rational analysis can get you to a point where you see a certain amount, but but it gets you to the what it gets you to is the point where you realize like oh rational analysis can't go any farther than this. I need to like pray essentially. I need to there's certain you know contemplative practices that I now need to engage in, and and that's where this kind of goes as well. So we've been asked in the chat, CS again, um, he says, interesting. This is not the average layperson Buddhist take, though, right? This is an explanation from a specific Zen monastic perspective. So what we're talking about is, is Majmaka. It's not, it's not Zen. Zen doesn't have any sort of like explanations for these things, especially not any that are supposed to be ultimate truth. Zen is, is based on, Zen is a dialectical way of practicing with the master where you, you show the master the bullshit that you have stuck in your head and it's repeatedly slapped out of your head to the point where your so-called grasping muscle does not work anymore, right? And then when all this gives way, you're able to see the tathata, uh, the dharmata, um, the true nature of reality. You're embodying prajnaparamita. Um, that's how that works, right? So this, and, and you're right to notice that the two things are related because I've always said that like, the real conclusion at the end of Nagarjuna's work, he it implies Zen practice is sort of a very high, very mature form of practicing Buddhism because there's no reliance on doctrine. We're relying on our actual phenom phenomenological experience in purity for everything. I, not practicing Zen, I, I don't want to answer for Storm or anyone in the Zen tradition, but to me, the way I kind of understand that relationship is like that place where you get like what what the what the Zen master is trying to do is in is you know through um, slightly different means the same thing that Nagarjuna is trying to do and it's that place that you end up at the end of this kind of rational analysis once you sort of once some once it clicks and you realize what you're doing wrong with your mind kind of every moment of every day and and you for a second you get a glimpse of what it means to not do that anymore that is what is being transmitted in Zen. That is what it means for the teacher. That's what the relationship of the teacher and student consists in. Is that right, Storm? Or is some That is absolutely 100% correct. You're being brought back to that place over and over and over and over and over and over. And then eventually it clicks and then you live there for the rest of your life. 
Sounds nice. And, and interestingly, I've met people that wouldn't understand any of this, uh, any of this philosophical talk, but they get it. And you look at, when I look them in the eyes, I see that they understand it. Right. It's like, I said this before, like when it finally clicked for me and my teacher was still alive and I went back to talk to him when he saw me, he, he was already smiling and laughing. Right. Cause you, you can notice it in another person. And even if you haven't like been to these places mentally yourself, although I would also say that everyone's kind of always there, but if you haven't seen it yourself and you meet people like, the Dalai Lama or maybe like, um, you know, some old Zen master who's been practicing for a long time, they have a quality to them and you can notice it, right? It's, it's there. But yeah, DK, you're absolutely right. That's absolutely the purpose of, of Zen practice, particularly Rinzai Zen practice, because the Soto school, you know, because that mind state that you're talking about when everything clicks is, is also extremely similar to Samadhi. So the Soto school is like, okay, we're just going to have you fucking meditate a lot all the time until you get it from that. There's are two different ways of sort of brute forcing the mind into that click moment. So um, unfortunately, Aura had to to duck out. Um, but uh, so I, I would love to hear him comment on this more. But um, do you wanna do you wanna continue with this, or do you do you have more you want to say in this chapter or these notes, or or um, what are your thoughts? I, I think we've we've done pretty well. Kagi, you got any comments, man? I mean, not really. It's it's been pretty much everything that I would say. Is it? I, the one thing I, I, I is CS's question like whether or not the um, this stuff is only I mean specific to Zen because I mean if if this is I, I think I think this is common to all um, all Mahayana Buddhist uh, traditions, yeah. not just Zen by any means. That's right. The, well, we, right. We discussed this before, but for those who may not remember, or for those who may be listening for the first time, and if you are, bravo to you. Very impressive to be you made it this far. Um, yeah, the um, the Mahayana Buddhism really starts with the perfection of wisdom literature, and and what what this text is, what Nagarjuna is doing here is is kind of providing an explanation or a gloss of like in because you know the, the Mahayana in the in the perfection of wisdom literature, the Prajnaparamita, like Storm was talking about earlier, you know, there's these kind of famous statements like emptiness is form, form is emptiness, and you know, the eye is empty of eye, ear is empty of ear touch is empty of touch, etc. Like at a certain level that, you know, maybe some for some people that is enough to just sort of hear that and understand what that means. For a lot of people, you know, myself included, um, it's not immediately obvious, like, well, what, what? <laughs> and, and so what Nagarjuna is doing here is he's explaining, you know, what when the when the perfection of wisdom literature and the perfection of wisdom sutras say, you know, I is empty of I, seeing is empty of seeing. What does that mean? And that's why he writes, you know, he said, well, if, if seeing actually saw something, then there would be a seeing that saw and a seeing that didn't see. So, but like, how would that even make any sense? Right. And so he, this is the kind of thing that he's doing. And this is common to all Mahayana traditions of which is, you know, Zen and, and, and pretty much, you know, everyone outside of the kind of like the Thai and Burmese um, Theravada and Sri Lanka Theravada traditions um, would basically be Mahayana. So then yeah, we're saying that this is basically like the base understanding. Like this is this is actually the common layperson's understanding. I mean, I wouldn't know. I mean, I wouldn't say it's a common layperson understanding, but it's definitely well, it, foundational to like. Hmm? Uh, it's like the correct understanding, right? Yes. I mean, it, it's definitely foundational, like with any I mean, in a lot of in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, it, there, it it's a reference back to it a lot. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, my buddy Will Wilhelms in the in the comments says Sozen and Tozen would be ashamed of Soto today to to be Asian. I kind of agree. Uh, we had it's for all the reasons we mentioned in our California Dharma episode. It's a bit of a shame to see. Mm. <laughs> well, so yeah, please, yes. Hmm? Say what now, Storm? You were going to say something. Oh no, I, I was just mentioning that. Oh, but where do you want to go now? Where where are we at? I've well, lost we're, we're we're kind of we're running a little long, and I mean it's not a big problem. But I, do we want to go to the next chapter? Or do we want to save that for next time? Well, you know, the next chapter. This is about um, desire and the one who desires, which is like we've said before. It's it's basically another specific example with more direct soteriological import of the problem with reifying properties and property yeah, havers. That's right. It's it's the same I mean the TLDR maybe we could just say is is that exact like in order to speak of someone who is a desirer, one who desires, there like that only exists in a relationship with this thing that you're calling desire and this thing that, that is called what is the object of desire, what is desired. There is no object of desire independent of desire and the one who desires. And so, you know, there is no desire independent of the one who desires and the thing that's desired, etc. So the point is when you're when you're when you're trying to point to some individual thing, what you're actually pointing to is a whole bunch of things, right? And and they're all kind of mutually dependent. And and even to say like well there you know you try to say I mean the kind of like one of the way one of the places this is going is when you say like okay well okay but they're mutually dependent it's like well but what does that even really mean because you know to say some things or to say x and y or x and y and z are mutually interdependent like that that's precisely the opposite of saying that there is a real x and a real y and a real z that can be isolated and, and separated and, and made into individual objects of analysis. As soon as you're, as soon as you start analyzing this whole framework, this whole structure falls apart. It do, it no longer makes any sense the second you start really like investigating, and that is what this is about. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's probably, I mean, I probably guess probably a the, good stopping point. Probably a good stopping point. I mean, the the, yeah. the only the only kind of like final note on this is again like so let's go for a second to um again like verses seven and eight you want to say alternatively if the distinctness of desire and the one who desires is established what would be the point of this co-occurrence that you suppose between them saying that one is not established distinct from the other you aim at co-occurrence yet you posit distinctness for the sake of establishing co-occurrence to if you want to say that x and y are co-occurrent are codependent so to speak then it, it doesn't it like again they're either the same or different if they're the same then they can't be code. They're the same. They can't be different. They can't be codependent because codependent is a relationship between different things. If they're different, then like, what do you, like, the, you know, what does it even mean to say that they're codependent? They're not, they're different. They, what is the connection, etc. I, I don't want to like belabor this point. I just wanted to say like this, this is, um, it, it's a particular kind of mode. Like it, it it's, so this is often gets accused of being a kind of language game. I think it's the opposite. What's the language game is what we do every moment of every day. And what he's showing is like, okay, well, what are the rules of this language game, this conceptual game that we're playing every moment of every day? And, and, and when you start looking at like the rules of the language game that we just sort of, you know, wander around lost and just apply to our everyday existence all the time. When you really look at like, what are the rules of that game? You're like, wait a second, this is Calvin ball. This doesn't make any sense at all. 
um, you know, I, th I think I think I thought everything was so logical, but but actually, you know, it, it doesn't make any sense once you try to do that. And and again, it's aimed at trying to induce this moment of like, well, if I'm not going to do that anymore, you know, well, shit, <laughs> and, and and you give up in a certain way, and 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 that's the moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's not as if something could be simultaneous with itself either, which is the third possibility that's mentioned. So that's pretty much exhaustive there. Uh, I will read a koan if you guys want to close on that. Please, please, sure, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, a monk asked Master Joshu, what about when there is neither master nor disciple? The master responded and said, the uncontaminated wisdom nature is possessed from the beginning. The monk responded, that being is without master and disciple. Joshu responded, you are master, I am disciple. Say the unconditioned what? He says, uh, uh, I'll read it again. The, mas uh, the monk asked, uh, what about it when there, is, um, when there is no master and no disciple? And Joshi responded, the unconditioned wisdom nature is possessed from the beginning. That will do it for uh, Right Wing <laughs> Dharma Squad episode 23. Thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you next time.